Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures.net. I'm your host, Caleb Wells, and with me today on the panel is Y. Lou. How you doing, Y? Yeah, pretty good. Yourself? I'm good. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So today, we don't have a guest, but you and I were talking about some of the technologies we've been using recently and how we're trying to factor them into our workflow. And we thought, you know, that would be an interesting topic to dig into what we're looking at, why we're doing it, you know, how we feel like it's it's benefiting what we're developing. And for me right now, that's uh, unit testing. Unit testing always seems to get the, the short end of the stick, right? Because it doesn't have a whole lot of upfront value. You know, it takes time away from quote unquote real development. And it's, it's a different way of, of thinking. But one of the things we decided when we've started the process of the, this new project we're working on is that we wanted to incorporate unit testing into our process because this application is going to end up being massive. And we want to have some checks and balances from when we do builds to the server or deployments to make sure that, you know, nothing's broken, right? So, so was it like a greenfield project then, or is it a, like a brownfield project? So I feel like how you approach unit testing is very different um, based on, you know, whether you're, you're starting new, because it's, it's probably generally right. a lot easier to start new. Um, but on a brownfield project, it might be a little harder. So Right, yes. Well, no, this, this is greenfield, or it's, it's a brand new project. We're basically rebuilding um, an existing software service from scratch. Okay. So, so we have complete control over all facets of it, which uh, I agree with you, you know, that it can be, it can be difficult to, to try to, to integrate unit testing, you know, when you're a year, two years, five years into a project, which is why we were hoping we can incorporate it at the beginning and, and keep moving forward. And so in that vein, I raised my hand and offered to, to dig into unit testing and see um, what would be the best fit for us and, and what would work, work within our, our workflow and, and be something that we would continue to use it, right? Because you don't want to start using it and you get to a point six months down the road, you don't have the time or the interest and you just kind of falls to the wayside, right? Yeah. It's always the first thing that goes when the, when the schedule is kind of you know, being pumped, right? <laughs> right. We'll get to it later, you know, like... Um... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uh, I guess the first thing to discuss, there are several unit testing frameworks out there, right? MS test comes kind of bundled in, so to speak. But uh, I've used NUnit before. And so um, I actually started, started with that and started running a couple of tests and kind of getting lay of the land and re-familiarizing myself. But I wanted to incorporate some other packages to kind of make make the test flow a little better and be easier to read and be easier to implement. And when I started looking at examples on GitHub and, and some other places, I saw that um, a lot of these people were using XUnit, which I was which I knew about, but 
had never used. And so I, you know, I did a little reading and research on XUnit and ended up trying it out and decided to go with it instead of NUnit. They're both really good frameworks, but the, I guess, one of the um, strong suits for XUnit or one of the, the features that stands out is in unit, when you go to run a test, it basically sets up a test class and so runs runs all the methods within a class inside of kind of the same structure, right? And that's where you can do like text fixtures, you know, set up and tear down and you have uh, stuff that you're reusing, which that's a whole nother topic. You know, some people say that's smart. Other people say you're not actually the tests aren't isolated, and so you can they end up stepping on each other, and you you can run into weird issues. But uh, XUnit actually tests each method separately, so it it spins up a separate process for each method, so they stand alone. So there there's there's so you're not you're not ever going to get into that that issue. So, so that what you're saying is that like um, for each test uh, the unit class. Like you'll have an um, X unit will have its um, own thread per class, whereas um, N unit won't. So only it's only so it will have its own own thread per test, but um, yes. N unit will have, have only one test per class. Right, right, yeah. And they both run. They both do parallel execution, but they do it differently. Really, the the isolation level is is the difference because, like I said, some of these other examples were using it. And it, it, it makes sense, you know, the, the benefits there. I decided to stick with it. There are other benefits, right, to in-unit or X-unit. And I won't, won't necessarily go into them here. I'll, I'll add a couple of links to, to the show notes. So for the framework, we decided to go with X-unit. Yeah. So with, with that out of the way, you know, this is where things started to get, get you know, more interesting. Anybody who's done unit testing in .NET, I'm sure is probably familiar with a mock, M-O-Q, in that, and right, that's the idea of you're mocking up a service or a repository, so you're not actually making you know, database calls, you're not actually interacting outside the context of that test. Yeah. Um, and, and mock is a very popular package for that. So set that up. And that was fairly straightforward. Uh, it's been a while since I've used it. So the process of actually setting up the mocks inside of the tests and whether you're using async calls or synchronous, that kind of stuff, you know, I had to dig into that uh, a little more, but fairly straightforward. Some of the, I guess, the more interesting things that that I picked up was using verify on on a mock that you've created and what it allows you to do is to verify that the process you went through in the test it's like an assert right but within the context of the mock and so for instance if i'm if i got a test that's that's trying to create a new item right and the model comes in everything's valid at the end you can use the mock to verify that it created that specific one object of that specific class one time, right? You yeah. can also have a test where um, you're expecting it to return a bad request because the model state's not valid. You can verify that 
you tried to create one object of that type, time is mm. never. So you're verifying um, that the, the method actually ran, is that what you're saying? Yes. Like, uh, yeah. Right. And actually either, you know, gave you data back or gave you what you, you expected, whether it's a collection of items or one item or no items. That was a piece I haven't used with Mock before. Um, mm. But it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I found it, it useful as a, an extra assert, really, um, in yeah. each test. So, so yeah. I, it's, it's weird with, um, with mocking. Like, I mean, I, I do use yeah. mocking um, wherever I can, but um, I think lately or yeah. in recent years, I've been leaning more towards not mocking um, as much of the database. In fact, I, I generally don't mock any of the database and just have, okay. um, you know, the .NET Core's um, in-memory database. Um, have you oh, yeah. That? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like, um, I mean, what I used to do is that I would mock the database, right? But I, and I'd, I'd mock all the link queries to return what I want. But then I was like, well, that's literally most of my business logic, you know. Like, um, so <laughs> if I'm if I'm going to be finding errors, um, I'm, I'm probably going to be, it's probably going to be how I'm mocking it, kind of thing, that rather than how I've coded it. So, I got um, you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, having, um, yeah, just basically using that that in memory database and and only mocking, I guess. You know, like you said, for, um, the dependencies that are that are outside of my the, the scope of testing. So, gotcha. Well, that's actually where my next package comes into play. Sure. Um, yeah, this uh, it's called Bogus, B O G U S. Okay. Right. And for instance, right, you have an in-memory database that you've seeded with certain data, right? Or in the case of how you would do it. Uh, in a test outside of that is you're actually creating example objects of the type you're wanting to build, right? And you're basically, you know, putting in the properties, strings, IDs, you're, you're, you're doing them up inside the test and giving them dummy data, right? To test against, you know, for instance, if you're testing an API that gets all of a certain type, right? All of a certain item, like tickets or whatever, right? Mm-hmm you would then end up creating a collection of three or four of them and then verifying that you got four back. Or in the sense of an in-memory database, you'd be actually calling the database and verifying that you got the amount you expected back. Bogus is actually um, it's a way of building uh, fakes, right? And it's got kind of a fluent API. It's got uh, something that calls a faker, and you can create a new faker with the type of the, the class you're trying to build off of. And then it has rules. And you do a rule for each property, right? So, for instance, for ID, you could do zero, right? If, it's, um, if you're adding a new case log. Or you could pass in an ID if you're wanting to update an existing case log, right? Okay. And then, for instance, description they actually have um, uh, lorem ipsum. So you can do rule for description and then use a lambda to actually build uh, dot lorem dot sentences. And so it will actually create a couple of sentences, random sentences for you, mm. right? The thing is though, I can write these fakers one time for like a get and an add and an update. And then inside of the unit test, I can actually call that faker and pass it a number like five because I, I want to get back five five of these items. 
and it will actually spin up five of them for me mm. with yeah. all the data associated that would normally be associated with those items. Can you explain then what, what the difference between a fake and a, and a mock is then? Like, um... So right, mock is mocking up the services and the repositories that you're calling to get the data back, yeah. right? And the fake is the actual data you're getting back. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, and, and so instead of having to write a list of items by hand, mm-hmm. right, with their IDs and descriptions and titles and addresses or whatever, or building it or having the in-memory database to get spun up every time, right? Mm. This will actually generate items on the fly um, based on the number I tell it to generate. And Mm. then I can, and, and so I write the code to do that in one place and then I can call it in all my tests to get tickets, add ticket, update ticket and tell it the number that I want to want to do it against. Okay, sure. Nice. Yeah. And so what you end up doing is the, then you pass those faked items, right, that list or whatever, into the mock. And then you verify, right, that um, you, you got the, the result you expected back. Yeah, sure. So, okay. Yeah, and I, I completely get the, the in-memory database, right? And, and, of course, the old school way that I've done it a lot in NinUnit is the setup and teardown, right? I would set up yeah. in one place, right, a collection of items mm. that I would then use in all my tests. This just allows you to write, really write the code once, right? And then reuse it in isolation in all of mm. your tests. So, sure, yeah. Um, and one of my coworkers had mentioned that he'd used Bogus before, not for unit testing, but in a different uh, area, similar to what you're doing, actually seeding a database with, mm. with dummy data to do some load testing. But this turned out to be um, really useful for me, right? Because, right, as a developer, if you can, you want to write something once, right? Mm. And then be able to reuse it a thousand times. Yeah, 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 sure. Of course. Um, and I guess the other thing about, when I mentioned I, I use the memory database, it is, I'm basically saying that I like to test my um, database calls, but I guess okay. one thing about the in-memory database is yeah. there it isn't actually the same as a as a real database. Um, right. Like for instance, it doesn't have um, foreign keys. It doesn't have um, right. it, it, it's not indexed. Um, so it, a lot of times you're not going to fully populate your entire database either. You're only going to populate what you need to kind of thing. So it is right. limiting in what you can actually test. But I gotcha. find it kind of useful anyway. So yeah, yeah. Then the the last package that I'm using for unit testing is called fluent assertions. And you have the, the three A's of, of unit testing. So yeah, it's arrange, act, and assert, right? Sure. Is that it? Okay. I, I always forget one of them, right? But um, the, the assert, the way it's written, it's not, it's not really easy to read, right? Mm. It's, it can be cryptic and also when a unit test fails, the error message you get can be even more cryptic, right? Or, or depending on how many tests you have running and, and what kind of errors happen, sometimes it can be hard to trace or track down or actually narrow down exactly what's going on. And so uh, I found this package, Fluent Assertions, written for, for .NET unit tests specifically. And what it, what it allows you to do is write the asserts 
in a more human readable way. If a test fails, they actually give you like a paragraph, like actual verbiage. Um, You attempted to, you know, create a ticket and um, that ticket was missing a required field of description and it failed. Instead of just saying, you know, test failed, unable to, to insert or whatever. Right. Does it actually generate these these descriptions for you? Because yep. I mean, you can you can add yep. your own description, obviously, but that's yes, yeah. Labor, so yeah, no, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's really cool. It's nice. Here's an example, right? A normal assert. If we go back to the get all that I was talking about, like get all tickets, right? A normal assert would be assert dot equal, and then the the list of tickets and the actual result you got back from the call to the controller, right? The way that Fluent Assertions does it, it actually does, well, it does a couple of different things, but for one, you can do result.should.be of type okay object result, right? Verifying that that it returned uh, a valid list, right? And then you can do, um, you can actually chain off of that, the result as an okay object result dot value dot should be equivalent to the ticket list, right? So it just, it reads, you know, in that more fluent style, I guess, right? Which I've gotten very comfortable with over the years with, you know, uh, mapping tools I've used and fluent validation and then uh, fluent migrations within the framework, right? Hmm. That's turned out to be... um, to work out pretty well. And it has some interesting additions or ways of, of verifying uh, you're getting the results you expect. One of those is if I'm expecting a bad request because a mallet is in a state is invalid, um, I can actually check that it is a bad request object result. And then I can check the value on that should be of type serializable error. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's got some nice features, right? Of course, it's, it's a different approach than, than doing an assert, but I like the fluent setup and I, and I like the more descriptive errors. Because, yeah, of course, you know. as, as you're writing unit tests, you're, you're, you're going to get errors, um, mm-hmm. whether you're starting from scratch or whether you break something. And it helps to have that, that description. You know, when we talk about unit testing, a lot of people are, you know, think that it's pretty much um, like test-driven development where, you know, you do that you know, red light, green light thing where right. Um, right. you basically, you know, you test, you, you write a test that fails and then you test it and, it and it's green, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you, you change the code, et cetera. Are you doing right. that or are you really just trying to figure out like the best way to, to automate your code? I love the idea of test-driven development in practice. I don't think it's practical. It's yeah. Just- <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's like, um, um Ideologically, I, I definitely think if I had unlimited amount of time and all that stuff, then that's the way to go. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah I'm. I'm it's, it's actually a good topic about um. Well, you know, like with, with unit testing, I think one of the one of the challenges, and you've touched on this, is essentially the Indian, like, is essentially getting everyone on board because you literally need everyone on board. You need management on board because you're basically right. telling them that you know you're doing something that is going to cost you more in the beginning. But um, you'll you'll reap the benefits later on, you know. So they're gonna have to yeah. trust that that is actually gonna happen. So, but then you also need like every developer also on board. Like I've 
I've been on projects where I've tried to advocate um, unit testing and yeah. um, the developers just weren't into it. Mm. You know, you can't be the only one unit testing because right. you know, like, it's just not going to work. As soon as they change your code, it's going to break all your unit tests kind of thing. So, right. yeah. So, so it's really good that you're in a team now that, that have actually decided to embrace the whole unit testing thing. So Yeah. Well, you know, right now we're actually developing or writing code to work with um, Identity Server and .NET Identity we're writing code for multi-tenancy. Yeah, you know, we're we're writing we're writing some of that that infrastructure code that we're going to want to have tests for. Okay, because right because it's it is vital to mm. you know the security and the the foundation of the application. And while I don't think TDD is practical, I do think um, writing unit tests are. And I even ran into this in this. Um, example project that I created to test out these packages and see how they work and, and see how to integrate them with a web API and a, um, an MVC application. And it made me think about how I was writing my uh, endpoints and writing my controllers mm. because the, the tests had an impact on it, right? Um, dependency injection, how you're handling uh, model validation, if you're checking for nulls, either null objects or, or nulls inside the object in certain places. Mm. And one of the things that, that, that kind of has helped me or led me to refactor some of my code and, and rethink it, um, I'm actually using um, a tool, uh, NCrunch, E-N-C-R-U-N-C-H. I tried using it like five years ago, but it was kind of like you, you know, not everybody in the team was invested. Managers definitely weren't because it's like, you know, we knew this yesterday. But what InCrunch um, does, and I think Microsoft has included something like this in Visual Studio Enterprise, but it'll actually, it'll go through all of your code and determine if you have unit tests for that code. And if oh. you don't, it puts a white dot to the left of the code that doesn't have a test against it. A green dot, if a line has a passing test, and a red dot, if there's a test but it's failing. Mm. And so it's that, that immediate feedback loop, you know, and I go write a test, and it covers all of the lines inside of that controller, mm. or, you know, a method inside of that controller, and they're all green, it tells me that, you know, I've covered all my bases. Mm. Um, oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the one of the I don't know. Do you reckon that could be also dangerous though as well? Because I mean, like, yeah, test coverage is a good measure, I guess, of how well how comprehensively you tested your application. But it can be also a little deceptive because, like, I feel like a lot of the times unit testing fails in a in a in a project because mm -hmm. we're testing the wrong thing, you know, or, or we're doing oh, yeah. testing like incorrectly, and it's really hard to define that kind of thing. Um, and for me, like, I kind of have a, a kind of an unspoken rule that if I say that. I think if something if, if code is going to last more than six months, I'll right. I'll do I'll, I'll try to unit test it. But if it's going to last less than six months, I yeah. may not. You know, like right. um, yeah. Well, so, I I actually had a conversation about this with my boss, right, my manager, so to speak, and we told him we want to do unit testing, and he said okay, you know. And then I spent a couple of weeks working on this this prototype with an 
MVC app and an API and unit test and trying to cover all my bases, right? Services, repositories, dependency injection, interfaces, all that stuff. And I got to a good point, right, where I thought like, okay, I've, I've covered most of the bases. That I feel like I know what we need to do. And he's like, so can you explain unit testing to me, right? Like, what is this? How is it going to benefit you? And he and I went back and forth, right? Because we're, we're not necessarily speaking the same language, right? He's looking at it from the business perspective and he wants to, not necessarily ROI, at least not in his case, but he, he wants to understand why we're doing it and how it's going to help us. We got to a point in the conversation where I said, you know, you can write unit tests that look like they pass, but they're pointless because they're not actually testing what you need to, right? Like you said, which which is one of the harder things of of unit tests. You can write a passing unit test. It doesn't mean it's a good one. It doesn't mean it tests what it needs to test. Yeah. Um, so in crunch is the end all be all. And I don't expect to get to even 90% code coverage. Because I think like like you said, some code is not, not worth writing tests for. It's not practical or it doesn't fit uh, a use case or it's unnecessary. Right. Yeah. But I found that it helps me to kind of just, in general, make sure I got all my bases covered. Um, I, think, I think, as you mentioned, the the code that, like, either you're saying you had you had you had tests for, um, and maybe they're not unit tests, maybe they're integration yeah. tests, but um, you, had, you were testing, you know, code that was central to your application that probably doesn't change um, right. much. But um, right. I think it's really good, a really good idea to to test those fundamental classes and stuff because. You know, we all get to a stage where a project's a couple of years old, um, maybe a couple of developers moved on or stuff, and you have this, you have all these holes in your in your code where like or these areas in your code where essentially you no one is allowed to touch it because no one has figured out how you know the the, the knowledge for how it was developed and what it's supposed to do has have long gone. Right. Refactoring it is is, is a it's a massive risk, you know. So right, yeah, but yeah. yeah I think uh, that is one of the benefits of unit testing. Essentially, once you have a comprehensive set of tests, then mm-hmm. you can just refactor it as, as, as much as you want and exactly. um, you, you're, you're confident that whatever you you do, you know, within reason, right. it's not going to completely break everything, you know? So. Yeah. Well, in the um, the project we wrapped up earlier this year, I guess it's been, it may have been even eight months at this point, right? We don't have any unit tests on it at all. And then in the past month, we had to add some new features for a specific client, you know, because sometimes that's just the way it goes, right? And we were trying to figure out the best way to add those features without them being a hack, but also without causing any regressions or breaking the code associated or the base code for the rest of our clients, right? Because we don't want to provide a feature for this client and break it for everybody else. Yeah, sure. And so it's one of those things, you know, you got to be extra careful because, you you have an idea of what you're what you're affecting or impacting, but you know you're not going to know 100 percent, especially in a project you know you've been working on for two plus years with thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code, right? Yeah. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit, and you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon, and when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, 
some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. When I do have to try to explain unit testing to a someone who's a manager um, yeah. or, or whatever, that is generally the, the line I, I go for. That is that is the ROI, I think. Um, right. the, the fact that um, the code quality is better later on because, you know, every application, you're going to have to change your code, okay? Um, right. The fact that you can you can change your code with a relatively, you're relatively assured that, um, you know, you're not going to break everything. Um, it, it, it minimizes, you know, testing time or, or regression testing time um, yeah. and allows you to, it costs you more in the beginning, but it allows you to to, to move faster later on. I think so. Right, you know, right. You don't get bundled with all this technical debt, you know. So. Yep. Cool. Well, hopefully, I haven't put all of our listeners to sleep talking about <laughs> unit testing. But I think you have some a couple of interesting things you've been working with lately. You want to yeah, sh- fill us in? Sure. Um, maybe I'll just fill one in because I feel like um we may not have time, but we'll see how we okay. go. Um, so yeah. look. But firstly, I'm not actually doing that much programming for work these days. I'm mainly, um, I guess, I'm mainly project managing other tech stuff, uh, other stuff these days. But, but I do miss it, um, and it's a, it's kind of a passion. That's uh, you probably know about it. It's kind of hard to break. Oh, yeah. Developing for you know decades, so I do do a lot of home projects and you know freelancing and stuff like that. And I guess a lot of what I'll be talking about will be based on that. Um, but and I think in a way it's kind of a good thing sometimes because. Um, when you're doing your own stuff, you you know you're not as encumbered. You can try out, out a whole bunch of new tech, and in, instead of possibly not you know not having as much choice, if you just go and work for someone else. You know, so I thought one thing I would um, talk about is uh, is something that I've, that I've been trying to use lately. It's called um, GraphQL. Yeah, so GraphQL is uh it's, it's it's actually not a it's actually more of an abstract thing. It's actually a specification that's been mm-hmm. created by by Facebook for a protocol. Um, and there's actually lots of libraries that implement the specification. The one I use is called um, Apollo on on the client's client side, right. and um, and GraphQL.net on, on the back end. GraphQL is essentially an an alternative to to REST API. I guess the notion of um, you know calling an endpoint um, and getting a bunch of I don't know, JSON or XML back um, as data mm-hmm. instead of getting you know XML and your entire page back. Like, uh, you know, I guess you know what is wrong with REST? You ask. Um, but I didn't realize there was, a, there was anything wrong with REST until I started using um, GraphQL. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed, but you, 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 but most REST APIs end up with something I call it the term REST hell, um, where you just end up having like a ton of, of, of endpoints. So like right. like an example, like let's say you, you build a website and you know you have a you have like a a user screen, mm-hmm. uh, a list of users. So you might have an endpoint that says get users, which drags all the user details back to you to, to, to your client and to, to render it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's awesome. That's one endpoint that does what exactly what you need. And then maybe on another page, um, you might want to display um, each user's, I don't know, um, account details as well. So then you go, okay, well, how do I do that? You, um, I, I might have to create another endpoint that says, and maybe I'll call it get users and accounts. And then maybe I'll, and, and on a third page, maybe it'll be, uh, you know, you, you, you might you, know, you might need um, some user data, but not all of them before. So then you kind of get to a situation where you go, well, do I create a third endpoint and do I just go get, you know, users with, you know, partial amounts of data of, Kind of thing, and you get to a decision where you, you're just you're having to decide whether you want to make separate endpoints for all of your 
calls or um, you just have fewer endpoints, but, but it actually gets too much data um, each mm-hmm. time. And there's right. actually no real way to, to figure out what the best solution is. It's really dependent kind of thing. And you'll probably end up just having your own convention. You, you might use parameters or query strings and all that stuff. And for me, I'm, I'm all about opinionated programming. Like um, mm-hmm. if, if someone has, has thought up the best way to do something for me, I, I like to use it because I know that I'm not smart enough to figure out, figure, figure out the best <laughs> way. So, so GraphQL is essentially a convention. Um, right. it, it allows you to have one endpoint and your, your, and your client crafts a, a customized query giving you exactly mm-hmm. what you want in a, in a consistent, agreed language that's that's kind of similar to to, to sql where you know and no matter what database you're using every dba will know how to use sql and, and they use sql in exactly the same way um in to to, to to query their database so i guess what you really have is um well for me um i've, I've been incorporating into um, a web api application yeah. you essentially have a you set up a graphql server which essentially is just just one endpoint and you call that endpoint with um, what's called a GQL query, uh, which is essentially the specification that's been defined by Facebook. And your server reads that that GQL and mm-hmm. it retrieves the data using um, types that you've defined. The so types are kind of like a schema that you've that you've you've defined, and it's kind of right. pretty similar to your entity framework, um, you know, POCO objects um, yeah. in that you know they're all kind of related to each other. But the intention is you're supposed to return these types. Back. They're kind of like response objects that are related to each other. So, so in the example, I guess before you might actually have a type for um for, for user, you know, but mm-hmm. that type uh, and that type will have all, um all of the fields of the user that you might want to return. You know, their their first name, last name, date of birth, you know, number of posts they've done, whatever. But you might also have a field called accounts, which actually goes in and and retrieves all um the, the user accounts, the user's account as well. Um, but the good thing, though, is it's, it's, it's incredibly versatile because what is returned is only what you've specified in the GQL query. So, you, you know, your, your GQL query might, um, might um, actually specify that you, that you only want uh, only a couple of, of the user fields, like you only want the first name and the last name, and, and, and then that's it. So, so the, the, the call only return those two. But you, or you can say, I want the, the, the user's account as well and all the account information and then also all of the user's you know, widgets that they've created um, um, and on all of the access levels. You can, you can kind of build like a, like a tree as well. But yeah, you, you essentially decide which field you want. So for me, it's, it's really good because I feel like you, you kind of have the back option of both, both worlds. You, you kind of have that cleaner API and you're right, and you're returning data that, that's more efficient. You're, you're only returning what the client actually needs at any one time. So with GraphQL.net, when you're, when you're calling that endpoint in C-sharp, is that a, a dynamic that's coming in, or, or how is it treating it? So your, your GraphQL, your, your GQL um, query will um, mm-hmm. resolve into a bunch of um, types, which is defined by your schema. Okay. And it will, it will probably go, it, it, the, the, the GQL is kind of like a tree as well. So it will mm-hmm. go, okay, you want your user, okay? Mm-hmm. And that user, that's defining the GQL, resolve to a, a user type in your, in your schema, okay? okay. you'll go for your user type and, and go for each field and go, okay, I want this field, that field, that field. And then, you know, if you have a, if you have a sub um, class called like the account, as, as I mentioned before, then you can also, um, it will also retrieve another, um, another type called account that you've defined yeah. as well. So one of, um, one of the things I do find that it's a little harder, I guess, is that you kind of have to 
reinvent the wheel a little bit because you do mm. have to redefine these types that are pretty similar to your entity framework types, but you do have to um, redefine them, I guess. So, And the reason I ask is uh, I've run to the same problem with REST, right? You end up with tons and tons of, of endpoints, especially if you're dealing with, you know, CRUD, right? Mm. And we ran into that with our application, a survey tool that had like 15 different question types. I don't mm. want all those CRUD endpoints for each one of those question types, right? That's, that's a lot of overhead, right? Mm. And a lot of different calls and different places. And you can't send one collection of questions. You have to send each type separately, you know, and, and maybe I should have, uh, should have used uh, graphql.net, but this was, you know, a year and a half, almost two years ago. So what I ended up doing was I created one set of endpoints for CRUD, right? And the front end actually sends me, right, JSON that comes in as a dynamic. And then I can actually do some reflection and determine what properties are on it. And then, you know, assign it to a concrete type. I guess similar to how uh, GraphQL is doing it. And then from there, I have the concrete type in the back end and I can do validation against it and I can do, you know, database updates. So, I mean, I, I absolutely see the benefit because uh, it was something I was like, we're, we're not doing, you know, 50 endpoints for these 15 <laughs> questions. It's not, it's yeah. not practical, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I absolutely um, see the benefit there. Maybe something we need to, to look into with, um, with that we're working on now. So you like it, huh? Because I've never used it, but from what I've read and what I've seen, right, it's like the holy grail of, you know, an API implementation. Because like you said, it, it is so slimmed down. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, like the example you've described, I feel like every developer has gone through that process. And, you know, right. they, they all come up with, um, you know, custom solutions that are, some are, some are more elegant than others. Um, right. You all sound like it's a pretty good solution. Um, but I guess... Good thing about GraphQL is that you don't have to. You know, it, right. there is a, yes. there is essentially a um, a protocol that that everyone can can use. And, and the good thing about having using something that everyone uses is that if you get a new developer or if you move to a different team and and they use GraphQL as well, you automatically know how how it works. You know, so yeah. and it's really changed the way I develop. I feel like um, so. And, you know, before I feel like when, you know, when I'm doing a, an application and I generally use Angular as my front end, but um, yeah. when I am writing an application, I'm almost constantly going back and forth. Like I'm, I'm writing kind of the front end and then I'll be like, okay, well, I need this particular new piece of data now. I'm going to have to go to the back end and, and, you know, change the endpoint a little bit um, and just jumping back and forth. But I'm now I'm focusing, when I'm using GraphQL, I'm fine. I'm really mainly focusing on getting my API right because it is mm. just so versatile. Um, and I just kind of go, okay, well, I can change the UI later in, in whatever way I want, because, uh, as long as I get the, the API correct kind of thing. Yeah, cool. So, Very so yeah, cool. Um, for me, it's been, it's been, it's been a – and I think one of the, one of the good things, though, is it's, it's, it's relatively easy to incorporate into an, 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 an existing application. Um, and I feel like a lot of these technologies, it's hard. It's not like you find a technology that's great, but you just kind of go, well, I don't have to, I don't want to have to rewrite my application kind of thing. And I feel like you don't really have to, you know, you can use GraphQL for, you can just set up a GraphQL endpoint and um, then you can yeah. use it for only new things as well. And then you can maybe slowly move, move over to it kind of thing. So gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely gonna, gonna have to look into it. Maybe since we're still in that, that research and prototyping yeah. phase, spin one up. 
what are you using mm -hmm. for your front end? Are you using um, like just- We're using you? Angular, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing you should also look into then is maybe the um, the, the Apollo client as well. So right. I, I really like the Apollo client because um, like, I mean, you can use you can use GraphQL for, for anything. You can just you don't even need right. a client. You can just call the G, um, you can just call the endpoint using you know handcrafted GQL. But the Apollo client also has like a caching mechanism as well. Um, okay. Actually, once you've called something, it'll stay inside the um, the Apollo cache, um, right. and it, it'll, it'll mean you can essentially um, render data really quickly, basically. So. Gotcha. So what what I generally do is I I'll and you know, this probably depends on. How much data you're returning or stuff, but at the start, at the start, I'll try to cache as much data as I can yeah, that I can right. that, that, that the client will need, um, and then I don't, and then the the page becomes much more fluid basically because I don't have to go back, I don't have to do those um, retrievals right. back and forth, you know. So that's kind of um, right now we're figuring out what state management we want to use, uh, NGRX or Akita, are the two options we're 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 digging into, um, right, and then. We're also, like you said, we're trying to find that balance of number of API calls versus the amount of data that's coming back and forth and being cached in state and how long we keep it and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Nice. That's no, good to good to know that. Yeah, let me know how we go. I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna figure it out one way or the other. Uh, five years from now, we, we might be kicking ourselves, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why do this way and instruments? No. Do we have time for to discuss the other one? I reckon we should. Absolutely, wait. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm up for it if you are. Yeah, sure. Another thing that um I thought I I would talk about today um was um I guess this is something that I've learned like probably over many years um mm -hmm. is essentially like one of the things I've learned is just whenever you can never ever try to implement your own authentication system. I mean, no, I have before, um, and I, I would probably all have, but I, I don't think there's a need to anymore. Firstly, because once again, I'm just not smart enough to to, to implement security um, using, you know, especially using you know industry best standards, which you know constantly change, and mm -hmm. and just even doing stuff like building the, um, the the correct webflow to you know to say like register someone or verify someone's um, password and, and all that all that stuff, you know. Um, right. All that stuff really should be done by someone much smarter than you who's dedicated to, to, to knowing how to do it. So for me, I, I generally like to, to outsource my authentication. Um, and there's mm -hmm. lots of different ones out there. Oh, yeah. You know, Microsoft probably has a couple, like you, know, like you said, you use Jenny you know, Server, you know, there's yeah. HAD. I think there's one called OAuth or OneAuth or something. Um, the one, the yeah, one I use. Um, so OAuth 2 and OpenID are more standards, right? Oh. That, that so, you would commit against. Okta. Okta is one that, oh, that okay. has their own, they handle all that for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like you well, said, the, Azure AD. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The one I use is essentially Firebase authentication, uh, which okay. is the one, I guess, owned by Google. Um, right. Google's right. kind of, their cloud offering is kind of weird. They've got their, yeah. their Google Cloud and then they've got their Firebase thing, which is kind of like a subset of Google Cloud. I don't know. <laughs> But I, I, I really just use the Firebase authentication yeah. part on Firebase. Um, but all these things are pretty similar anyway. Um, it basically offers a whole bunch of these UI components um, mm -hmm. in all of the you know, popular frameworks like, like Angular or React or Vue and probably just probably just normal HTML as well. Um, yeah. And it'll just do your authentication for you. Um, so it'll, you know, it'll, 
you'll have UI components that will allow you to, you know, register the user, you know, using whatever is best practice, you know, either, whether it's, you know, email confirmation, you know, it'll set the, the, the right mm-hmm. password complexity, you know, you, you can even implement MFA if, if, you know, if you want to turn that on kind of thing. Um, so how are you using the Firebase auth? Are you using .NET as a backend yes. for this? Yes. So, so, so how, how is it, and we don't have to get too deep into it, but I'm just curious, right? You handle all the DAW stuff in Firebase for the front end. How is it passing your tokens and how long you're still authenticated to the back end? Oh, okay. Um, so essentially, like, so once you've logged in using Firebase, yeah. you think that UI or you don't even need to use the UI. UI is just for, you know, convenience sake. But if you... Okay. Once your user has logged in using Firebase authentication, yeah. it'll generate like a what's called a JWT token. Right. Yeah. Job. Yeah. 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 So I'm not not actually too sure what's in there, but all I know is it's a, it's essentially a cryptographically signed token that um right. that Firebase has, has signed to, to say that this guy is is who who they say it is. So, and then um, what I do on my server is I register um five the my Firebase um, authentication um, instance as a like an identity provider. Okay. Um, so that when I get the JWT token, the server basically goes, okay, well, this guy has been already authenticated with, you know, Firebase. I trust Firebase, so I'll just give them access to whatever they need access to. And, and that's actually okay. pretty simple. Um, you just, um, in, in Web API, um, you just do yeah. it within your, your startup class. And, yeah, you just have to enter a bunch of keys and, and things like that. Um, it's gotcha. it's, it's not, not too difficult to do. But, but actually, I, I was going to actually touch on the fact that... Um, you actually raise a good point. So, when I say I I um, outsource my authentication, I'm, I'm outsource. I like to differentiate between authentication and authorization. So, oh yeah, yeah, the two right. It's it's easy, especially if you're new to this, to get them confused. But they're two yeah. very different um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. ways of, yeah. of yeah. yeah. Authentication is validating like that the user is who they say they are, um, right. whereas authorization is essentially. What Once can you I do? know who they are, they're, yeah, you know, giving them access to whatever. So I guess the, the right. classic example is if you're at the at the airport, um, and mm-hmm. you know you give the dude at the counter your um, you know your your passport. Um, that's your mm-hmm. authentication to say you are you know who you are. They will then you know give you a boarding pass to, and that boarding pass is your authorization to you know board the plane. I guess. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. That that that's a good example. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like authorization is very much related to your business requirements mm-hmm. so for me I, I always do the business authorization stuff um within my own app um and basically firebase office just telling me who has logged in I, I'll, I'll generally use those just the asp.net identity tables so um, do, you, do you use those um, generally? yes yeah. yes with identity server you can use the .net identity tables or not so identity server has its own tables claims and and grants and a whole bunch of other stuff, but you can combine the two, which is yep. what we're doing. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I, I just use it because, I mean, it's, it's really up to you how you do your authorization. Um, right. I just use it because it's convenient. Um, you know, you have you, you have access to all of those, um, all, you know, uh, the, all the attributes that, that is already right. defined in .NET for authorizing, you know, endpoints and things like that. And, right. you know, you, you know, you already have those roles and claims tables and it's kind of in a, right. in a, Table structure that's relatively easy to understand for most devs if they've just joined yeah. joined, joined the project. So for me, it's easy and it's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to add them in. I think all you got to do is, um, for memory, I think all you got to do is just I think in in your DB context, you just got to mm-hmm. inherit 
like something called from, like the IDDB context. Yeah, or something. yeah, exactly. Yep. And then you might go yeah. to the table, I think. But so obviously, I mean, you can probably tell I'm not. I've tinkered with Firebase, but I'm not familiar with the authentication side of it. So, can you do users can create accounts specifically for your system, or they can log in using their Google or Facebook or Twitter, whatever credentials? Uh, is yeah, all so that baked in? They can use Facebook login, um, or mm-hmm. you know, or, or or Gmail login, or you know, mm-hmm. WeChat right. login, whatever to log in. Um, but they're they're just using that to authenticate, um, right. and everyone ha- every application has their own Firebase authentication instance kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know if that, that explains, explains it properly, but yeah, you, it, but short answer, yes, you can. Um, and okay. yeah, then that's, that's one of the pluses. It will just do that for you. You don't have to. I mean, all you got to do is go into Facebook um, and just grab their. I think there's a right. There's a, you 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 got to go into the developer side and create a an app and get yeah the secret TF. I've I've done that whole rigmarole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You still have to do that, unfortunately. Um, I don't yeah. think there's. I think I mean, maybe for Gmail, you probably don't have to do that because it's, it is just owned by by Google. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's like it's nice about to turn that on, and also like um, it, it does the emailing for you as well. Like you know, if you forget okay. your password, um, it'll it'll actually go and um send an email out, crafted in yeah. whatever is the the best practice. Learn. Nice. That, that, that you need kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, like a lot of times in the past where I've had to build my own authentication system, I've yeah. also had to also get, like get like, I don't know, use, what are those services? One of those emailing um, services. Um, uh, yeah, I use a Spark Post. So they, they handle all of my uh, email, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, so I don't have to, to pay for it along with my hosting, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, a lot of times, most of most of the time, your your application is only going to email someone during the um, authentication, like that that, that right. aspect of it. So yeah, I mean, maybe not. Maybe you might use it for other aspects as well. But um, you know, if, if it is all you're using, then you don't have to set that up. You know, so right? That's also quite convenient as well. Oh so. yeah, absolutely. One yeah, less headache to worry about. So to yeah, speak. yeah, definitely. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. Should we go on to picks? Yeah, yeah. So what about you? Today, my pick is... It's kind of a weird one. So I recently got an Amazon Prime membership. It's actually just a new thing that has um, been introduced in Australia. Uh, I know uh, you guys have yeah, um, right. So it's not that new. It's been around for maybe like six months to a year kind of thing, but I recently okay. got one. And I started yeah. watching um, the Amazon Prime like videos, kind of yeah. like the Netflix offering. Yes. It's not that's not actually that good actually. It actually doesn't have a lot of TV shows, but it, it was it came with the Amazon Prime. Yes, it comes with it. Yep. So I can't complain, but... But one thing I did notice that was really, really cool about the actual app itself is this feature they've got called X-Ray. And essentially, like, when you're watching a TV show, if you kind of click on it, it'll show you on screen who the actor is, even some, like, if, if, if there's a particular song playing, who's, who's singing the song, and then you can actually go in and, and figure out what other movies have been in and, and things like that. Um, I thought that was really awesome, and it's kind of tied to... Um, IMDb, which I, I, I've learned is actually owned by Amazon. So that actually oh, they bought IMDb. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I think hmm. it is. So I think that's how they've they, they yeah. been able to get all their, their, their data from, um, yeah. 
that kind of thing. But um, yeah, for me, it was, I thought it was really awesome that that essentially they've, they've put in metadata for all of their, their TV shows so you can actually go. Right. My wife loves that feature, X-Ray, oh, yeah. right? Because cause you'll be watching a movie or a TV show and you're like, I know that guy, but I don't <laughs> yeah. know that guy, right? So yeah. yeah, she loves it. Yeah, it's it's very it's neat yeah. how yeah. They, they've integrated that, how it works. Yeah. yeah definitely. Nice, yeah. Cool. Well, my pick is going to be another Switch thing. It seems like every other week, uh, something for me is is Switch related. But with Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all that, there's been a bunch of deals on um, the Nintendo store. And one of them is a Paw Patrol Switch game, which I don't, uh, I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with Paw Patrol. Uh, right, I, I've it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a kid's cartoon and I have a four-year-old and he loves the cartoon, right? We've got blankets and we've got, we got toys and stuff. It's basically a game geared towards kids his age, you know, four, five, six, right? It's not something that I'm going to sit down and play because it's not, it's very basic, but it's, it's really cool. He and I um, have sat down like every other night and played it. And he's actually on the switch and he's hitting the buttons, right? Jumping and moving left and moving right and and doing actions. It's easy enough for him to grasp, still difficult, difficult enough for him to have, you know, stay focused and the, the hand eye coordination, you know, motor control stuff. So, uh, so that's been cool. How old is your kid, sir? Four. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Because um, my kid is out. Like, my oldest one is is five, and I've yeah. I've been trying to get her on the switch as well. But I find that she's 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 not quite coordinated enough yet to 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 that's, use both um hands to hit yeah. all the buttons and stuff like that. Um, yeah. On the, on the tablet, she's she's fine. But yeah, she's 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 still not there yet. And I'm kind of waiting for the day that that she is, and we can like play Mario Kart together. Right. Sort of like, pretty right. awesome. <laughs> Well, you know, with Mario Kart, you know what I did with him, right? He doesn't know he has to keep the button down to keep moving. So I actually turned the speed on auto. You know, you can do that for for one of the characters. And then he can just move his character around. Um, Yeah, if, if if you pause it once you're in a course, at the top, you'll see like there's three different settings for each driver. And you can completely automate it if you want. It will actually steer. It will speed up. It'll do everything itself. Ah, cool. I'm so like I, yeah. So I just turn on yeah. speed for him. That way he doesn't have to remember to hold the button down and he just, yeah. he m- navigates around. Does it also do like steering as well? Cause I feel like she yes, always, it will. Or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It'll do both. It will do both. That's actually awesome. Cause she, I, I give it to her and then like two seconds later, she'll just be stuck in against a tree or something. <laughs> like, right. Right. But... Yes. On the 50cc courses, you know, they'll actually come in, you know, like second or third without doing anything. All right. Nice. Even, even if they think they're doing something, it's steering and driving for them. Uh, so, cool. yeah. I'm gonna, definitely going to get her to do that today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Cool. cool. <laughs> well, why? I had, uh, I had fun discussing some of the tech we're using and yeah, hopefully yeah. Um, our listeners will get something out of it. And if they want to reach out, get in touch with us, then go to uh, devchat.tv and uh, can also uh, join our Discord channel. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, no worries. Well, um, have a good weekend, eh? Thanks, Juan. You too. See ya. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.